0: On January 26th, four and a half months ago, I was given a totally surprise retirement party in this room. Four and a half months ago, we were thinking and talking about different things than we are thinking and talking about today. We're seeing different things on the news than we saw then. And my guess is that we're feeling different things today than we were feeling then. Our thoughts, our words have been captured by a pandemic where the facts seem to change, by an economic shutdown that's been devastating to many of us, and now by the murder of George Floyd, which has ignited long suppressed outrage over racial injustices, Um, and and even last night in Atlanta, uh, another episode. There are mighty lessons to be learned from these three tragedies, and they all invite long-term reflection, not quick band-aids. Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be really nice, if we had a word from God that would specifically address when life was unpredictable and, and uncertain and insecure, wouldn't that be nice? I think you know what the word axiom means. An axiom is a, a statement that's foundational or self-evidently true. And the last time I spoke from this passage, uh, three weeks ago, I said that this entire section of First Peter that we've been working our way through is about living in awareness of four axioms for believers. And I laid out four axioms last time, and all four emerge from the context. And each, one point, each point provides perspective for how we are to live in this fallen, broken, unpredictable, uncertain, insecure world. And here's the first one. If you remember these, number one, life in this fallen world is not fair. Don't expect it to be. Don't be surprised when bad things happen. Two, even when God lived in this fallen world, it was not fair to him. He was slandered, falsely accused, physically abused, and executed. And then his followers were slandered, falsely accused, physically abused, and executed. Number three, you are to live for God in this fallen world trusting in your awareness of his sovereign presence in the circumstances of your life. And number four, as you live for him, your life is going to be under scrutiny by an audience of unsaved spectators who may intentionally misunderstand you and your motives, but who will take note of how you handle the unfairness of this world. Now, Peter, in this section, has been talking to believers who are displaced aliens because of their faith, and in some cases, they've lost everything, in other cases, they're living in hard situations because of those who have power over them and he's been describing how you trace Christ as you live in these situations and that's the phrase that we used a few weeks ago it comes from chapter 2 verse 20 and verse 21 look at chapter 2 verse 20 starting at the last part if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it this finds favor with God for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for, me, for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And a few weeks ago I mentioned that the word example is only here in the New Testament, and it's a, it's a word that refers to tracing. It's a word that refers to a pattern when a child would learn to form letters or draw a picture from a pattern or a template. And the idea is that Jesus... The life He lived is the template for how we are to live. Did Jesus live in turbulent times? Did Jesus ever deal with hard situations? Did Jesus ever deal with broken people? Did Jesus ever face hostile enemies? Absolutely. And He is our template. We are to trace Christ. Now, we cannot have His atoning ministry, but we can have the mind of Christ, as Scripture exhorts us to do. And in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter has so far in chapter 2 applied this to being a slave to a master who is hostile to Christianity and then after that to being a wife of an unbelieving husband who is also hostile to our faith. And as we saw before, the idea of tracing Christ is based upon your new identity as a believer. Back in chapter 2, it, has not, it doesn't have to do with your function, what you do, it has to do with your identity, who you are. In chapter 2, we saw that we are a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, the people of God, people who have received mercy, people that may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvel, marvelous light. Your identity is not who others say you are, your identity is who God says you are. So, at this point, Peter after working through this, reaches verse 8, and begins to sum up. To sum up. Some versions say, finally. Now, when preachers use the word finally, there's some elasticity to the meaning of the term, right? (laughs) Here, when Peter sums up What he's doing is, first of all, he is concluding this section, but also opening the door to another discussion. It is a hinge passage. And we're going to be looking at this hinge passage that's so important, we're going to be looking at it for two weeks. We're going to spend two Sundays on this. So far, up to this point, Peter has talked about persecution in a very guarded way. It's true that Christians had already been persecuted at this point. I mean, just read the book of Acts. But so far, it was mostly confined to Jerusalem. The last major thing that happened was Stephen was martyred. And then believers were slandered and beaten. But beyond Jerusalem, it happened in some places, but mostly in pockets here and there in the Roman Empire, it wasn't something that extended through the entire Roman Empire. So Christians were not facing active persecution across the board. In fact, if you skip down to verse 13, Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is, well, no one. (laughs) That was about to change. And in just a few years, if that same question had been asked, the church in unison would have said, Nero. But Peter acknowledges that that is about to change. However, he makes clear that the goal for followers of Jesus in days when life is so unpredictable, so uncertain, so turbulent, so insecure, the goal for believers is not just survival. Our goal is that we would shine forth the gospel in these hard, insecure, uncertain, turbulent times. In light of the fact that this world is not our home, we have been entrusted with a task. If you take a look at chapter 2, verse 9, the last part, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our job description. Look down at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which you are slandered as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of redemption. And if you look ahead in chapter 3, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience So that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So that's where he's going. And we're going to get to that point. But some of what I just read to you is in part two of this two-part study. So let's back up now to chapter three, verse eight. To sum up, or if I can paraphrase that question in light of what I just said to this, Now, exactly how do you trace Christ? Exactly how do you do that? To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. These are five virtues listed. And each one, by the way, has a counterpart in the life of Jesus. This is how you trace Christ. You want to know how to trace Christ? This is how you do it. Verse 9 starts with a negative. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but, and here's the positive, giving a blessing instead. And the rationale? For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now those two verses are really going to be our focus primarily today. This is how to trace Christ. G.K. Chesterton, the intellectual mentor to C.S. Lewis, said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Now, if you look at verses 8 and 9, just look at those verses. Is there anything there? Any of these exhortations and qualities? Is there anything in these two verses that does not apply directly to our moment in history right now? I mean, What we're looking at here is front lines Christianity. One writer put it pretty well. Quote, the Christian community is to be an alternative society where believers should not have to face the same kinds of hostility internally that comes from those outside the church. Here's the plan. You ready for the plan? We are to live as believers like an alternative moral universe that puts the gospel on display. And it's on display for all races, for all classes, for all political leanings. And Peter is speaking to Christians about how to live with hostile unbelievers. But how much more should these words describe what goes on inside the church, right? Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble. Here's the thing. These qualities are to be on display within the church for unbelievers to see. To put the gospel on display. And as we are given an opportunity to extend those qualities to unbelievers, we are able to put them on display before them and treat them in the same way. So let's unpack each one of these terms. Here's the first one. The first term in verse 8, harmonious. Literally, it means harmonious like-mindedness this this does not mean like-minded with the world but with one another in the gospel and in the teaching that flows from the gospel here's the same word that you see elsewhere in the new testament romans 12:16 be of the same mind that's that's the term of the same mind towards one another do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly do not be wise in your own estimation pretty clear isn't it listen to philippians 1 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. There it is again. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Pretty clear. Philippians 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Pretty clear. This doesn't mean that you are going to agree with every Christian about everything. There are Christians who have different views on baptism, on end times, predestination versus free will, weaker brother issues, and the list goes on and on. As one person said, to sing in harmony does not mean to sing in unison. We are different. But it does mean that you're going to be more unified with other believers than you are with the world, and that will show. Because... You, in your relationship with another believer, you both know who God is. You both know who you are. You both know what sin is. You both know what grace is. You know what faith is. You know what love looks like in Jesus. And that's just the beginning. The list goes on from there. And the thing is that many of you, um, many of you have unsaved family members. You love them. But I have, I've been told so many times by so many people that they are more unified with their church family than they are with their biological family. That's because the gospel is to be on display to unbelievers in a winsome way. So the first term, harmonious. Here's the second term, sympathetic. This is a compound word from the word with and the word to suffer to suffer with. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Romans 12.15 Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12.26 If one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored. All the members rejoice with it. This term sympathetic refers to being able to see problems and concerns from the other person's point of view. And, and being willing to do that the basis for this is Hebrews 415 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize same word cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin just the very point is Jesus became as we are and therefore he understands so be intentional about identifying with your brothers and sisters because that will trace Christ and it will be observable you know, these, these qualities will go a long way in defusing problems within our community. I mean, we can't do these things nationally. We don't have that scope, but we can do this within our own sphere of contacts and the people that we know. Here's the third term harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. Actually, this is not the word, uh, not the adjective for brother, it's the compound word from which the word Philadelphia comes. Usually it's translated brotherly love. And often when it is, we put the emphasis of Philadelphia on the love part. But in this context, the emphasis is on the brother part. You are bonded to one another, a brother and sister in Christ. And therefore you resolve to treat them well because they are your brother and sister. And God expects you to do this. In fact, he expects you to surrender what you think of as your needs and your expectations to the needs of others. I love how Paul applies, this is, good. this is great, I love how he applies this to the Thessalonians. Listen to what he writes to the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, there's the term, love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But listen to this. But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. Do you you get that? You are doing so great at this. You are doing wonderfully well at this. You're the only church I'm going to give praise to in in, in all of my writings for doing this. And do it better. (laughs) Because you never arrive. We never arrive. So, harmonious. Sympathetic, brotherly. Here's the fourth term kind hearted. The root word is bowels. Have you ever heard someone speak of having a gut feeling? The, the idea of, of this is, is deep inward feelings of real concern. So kind hearted, that just goes deep within you. And, and now, before we were told to be sympathetic, it's sort of a challenge to separate kind hearted from sympathetic. And this is not hard and fast, but. If sympathetic refers to our commitment to understand and suffer alongside someone, kind hearted refers to our emotional identification with them. By the way, this remo- removes all defensiveness from our conversations with each other. The only other place in the New Testament where this word for kind hearted occurs is in the book of Ephesians. Paul used it, it keeps really good company. Listen to this. Be tender-hearted, that's the term, tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So, trace God. How many church squabbles would be avoided if people were kind-hearted? How many marriages would be healed if people were kind-hearted? How much social unrest would be diffused if people were kind-hearted? Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. Here's the fifth one. Humble in spirit. Now, for us, we're used to thinking of humility as a virtue. That's a common thing for us because that's all through the New Testament. But humility was definitely not a virtue. In the Greco-Roman world, it was a, 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 a term that was used to describe shame and weakness. Not for the body of Christ. This is countercultural. The Greco Roman world was all about self esteem. <laughs> In fact, let me be more accurate. It was all about self centered esteem. If the scripture says if you want to create you want to trace Christ, lower your self centered esteem. Don't raise it. By the way, one one good Bible study would be to compare all the verses in the Bible against pride, which is thinking too highly of yourself. Compare all those verses with all the verses in the Bible that describe how you are to promote your own self-esteem. And let me know if you find one. Instead, you're more likely to find this. Romans 12, 16, Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men and found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. We did he took our place. And when He did that, He humbled Himself. I've said this many, many times. There's a big difference between being humbled and humbling yourself. So, trace Christ. Peter continues his, his point in the next verse with the negative and the positive in verse 9. 1 uh, first, uh, first Peter 3, 9. Negatively. Not returning... Evil for evil or insult for insult, but positively giving a blessing instead again this is, this is very countercultural. The norm for the first century world was not reconciliation or restoration, but retaliation. That was the norm let 's dwell for the moment on on how this works: the idea of not returning insult for insult and I want to deal with two scenarios that Peter himself puts forward in this context. Both are mentioned here and here are the two scenarios number one you suffer because you brought it on yourself number two you suffer because you're following jesus faithfully so let's take a look at those two things first of all i brought it on myself i have enemies because i earned them look at chapter two verse 20 what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience if you do, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. But then he goes to verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a trou- troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So the first scenario is I have enemies because I've earned them. I'm responsible in some, for some reason, in some way, um, for why they dislike me. Maybe I've been obnoxious, maybe I've been unkind. So what am I supposed to do about that? Well, if you look at the larger context of Scripture... You take responsibility for it. You make it right as much as you can. You apologize. But in today's culture with the social media, there are more wrong apologies than authentic ones. 30 years ago, yeah, 30 years ago, I clipped an article uh, called Apologies That Aren't. And I kept it. Apologies That Aren't. This is before... Our current political climate, and if you can imagine how this has played out in—here's Gary's cynicism—in the political arena in Washington D.C. and the media, if you can imagine how this has played out, it is almost an unbelievably identical description. The writer identified what she called shameless apologies, in which she was. This is, she, she was beginning to see this in the culture, so she wrote this article about it. Here's how you identify a shameless apology. She gives two ways. Uh, actually, she gives more of it. I'm going to distill it to two. Here's the, fir- the way you can identify it. First of all, you don't say, I did this. I was wrong. You don't say that. Instead, instead you say, you were sorry that the incident occurred. You make it into the third person. Here's an extreme but true example. In a sentencing hearing, one convicted rapist said, quote, I'm very sorry for the pain that the incident caused her. It's crazy. So, first of all, you, don't, you, you, you say you're sorry that the incident occurred. Second, here's another way of identifying a sh- shameless apology. Secondly, you define the terms, the problem in terms of their emotions rather than your actions. Not your actions, but their emotions. I'm sorry that you are so upset about this. If you've ever heard that in your home, it needs to be reworded. I'm sorry that you are so upset about this. Which implies that their anger is really their problem and maybe they have no right to feel quite that hurt. So if I put these two together, I've come up with my own apology. Here's my apology. Are you ready for it? I can just I'm going to use this all the time from now on. If anyone feels pain over the incident that occurred, I'm sorry for how upset you feel. That work? The reason I'm mentioning this has to do With the issue of accountability the issue of responsibility the issue of truth if you are to blame you accept that responsibility you see this in contrast between David and Saul King Saul when King Saul was confronted with his sin by the prophet what did he do he blamed the people he blamed God and he blamed the prophet you know, I'm. I'm not. You know. When David was confronted by with his sin, what did he do? I am the man. I own this sin. He repented, and he wrote a statement of repentance. Called Psalm fifty-one. that was to be sung by the people in the temple. I was really wrong. I did this. It was my fault. Will you forgive me? And I know it's going to take a long time to make it up to you for what I did, but I'm like trying. This is not grovelling. This is taking responsibility for your actions. This is being humble and honors your word. So, in this first scenario. Peter is describing trouble that you bring upon yourself. And and he mentions this three times in this context, okay? In the second scenario, however, you have enemies that you did not earn. They simply dislike you for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of your faith. You haven't necessarily given offense, but they've taken it anyway. And this will happen, as Jesus said, If you follow me, you will suffer. If you are tracing Christ, the world will be hostile towards you. Jesus made that clear. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 16, If any of you suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So how do we handle that? If someone resents you or expresses it or hurts you, wounds you, persecutes you for being a Christian, you have not earned their hostility. How do you respond? Well, you can feel outraged because, hey, this is just so unfair. My rights are being trampled on. Here's where the reality of your faith is put into practice. Because there is all kinds of unfairness. In this world Paul addresses the same tension the Apostle Paul does in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible so far as it depends upon you be at peace with all men now Paul's not talking about peace at any cost scripture makes it clear that you don't sacrifice truth you don't uh, you don't compromise principles but you do take the initiative and trace Christ and notice that this verse says, if possible, which implies it's not always possible. It can't always be done. Sometimes they won't. Because you can't control what, how they're going to respond to you. But your responsibility, be humble enough to let it go and to be at peace with all men. Peter Marshall, the uh, chaplain of the Senate over a generation ago, prayed, I love this prayer, Lord, Where we are wrong, make us willing to change. Where we are right, make us easy to live with. Well, Peter's admonition, no, Peter the Apostle, not Peter Marshall. Peter's admonition echoes what Paul said. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Peter says that, but he adds something else in verse 9. Negatively. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but positively giving a blessing instead. And scholars go back and forth on that last phrase. What's meant there? Do you bless them? And how? Or do you bless God? What does that mean? Because the idea of blessing literally means to speak well of someone. But if Peter is referring to what I think he's referring to, which is prayer then the blessing does not mean that you lie by inventing good things to say about them or that you flatter them by attempting to manipulate them uh, or that you are speaking in any way that doesn't ring true. Instead, the idea of blessing is that you bring them to God in prayer. Now, if this is right, and I think it is, then we are told not only to avoid retaliating in kind, which... I mean, that restraint is hard enough. Insult for insult. We are told to go the extra mile, not only to treat them kindly, but then to bring them to God in prayer. And that's not just gritting your teeth in a passive-aggressive prayer. That's genuinely praying for the eternal good of the person who is hostile to you. Jesus put this uh, together in Luke 6 28 when he said, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Do you see the same two words? Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Are we tracing Christ here? Well, did Jesus bless his enemies by praying for them? Yes, he did. Case after case where he did just that even down to the cross. So does Jesus expect that of his followers? Yes, he does. Um, there are parallels um, in the book of Acts and the Gospels between Jesus and the first martyr, Stephen, the first man who was killed for his faith, after Jesus. There are parallels, and, and Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and the Spirit had him intentionally, I believe, draw out these parallels because Stephen is only mentioned in two places in the New Testament, so what is said about him is very intentional. Let me explain a few of these parallels. Both Stephen and Jesus had ministries of preaching and miracles. Both were said to be full of the Spirit. For both of them, Scripture tells us that their adversaries were unable to match them in debate. For both of them, enemies used false witnesses against them. Both were arrested and appeared before the Sanhedrin. Both told the Jewish court that they were as blind as their forefathers in rejecting God's word. Both made it clear that God did not need to be worshipped in the temple alone. In both of their trials, false accusers twisted their words about the temple. See, this is not unintentional. This is very, a very clear parallel What's Stephen doing? He's tracing Christ. And then you come to this. Acts 7.59 They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Acts 7.60 Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. Stephen was tracing Christ. Another word for tracing Christ. Being a witness. When Paul was saved, in his prayer that he prayed to Jesus, as he was saved, he records it in Acts 22, he told Jesus this, quote: Lord, when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving, watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he's and." So, Lord, your witness, Stephen. And the Lord says to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul calls, calls the way Stephen lived and died a witness as he was tracing Christ. Witnesses trace Christ in their suffering. Why? Because Jesus does not want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Is that in the, that's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? Isn't that in the Bible? Does not want any to perish, but for all to come. Oh yeah, it's in 2 Peter. So instead of returning insult for insult, you pray for them. At the very least, that they would be saved. And by the way, this includes silly offenses. Um, like the nasty driver that races ahead and cuts you off and then shares with you a digital hand sign. Or... Uh, the, uh, the guy who doesn't know how to negotiate the W road. How to do that dance, you know? And uh, you know that moment where you go the other side of the curb and your windows are, he can see you and, and you can see him and he looks at you like, you are an idiot. I, I say that because I've heard that happens. Okay. Or like me today coming up the W road and the guy was right on my tail. Uh, All the way up. Uh, Or the waitress. Or the checkout clerk that seems rude. Thing is, you don't know what's going on in their life or what happened 20 minutes before. You don't know. And that waitress just saw you pray before the meal. They're watching. Or the colleague who reamed me out. For something I didn't do, but because of confidences I could not explain. Plus, I knew he had a horrible home life. So, because God has given you grace, you be gracious to others. And if all you can do is give them a best case interpretation, even that helps. The reason why that guy was tailing me, uh, uh, tailgating me on the way up the mountain is because His mom is sick and he needed to get to her bath. Maybe, I I don't know. But give them a best case interpretation. Even beyond that, what we are to do is to bless them. To pray for them. And did I pray for the guy who was on my tail up the mountain? I did. Because I have been in this passage. Last week I did not. So, my job is not to explain to someone why they shouldn't feel the way that they feel, but first to come alongside them and to pray. If if you live your life in retaliation mode, it will eat your soul. But if you live your life in reconciliation mode, it will bless your soul. This is definitely not easy. Dr. Jean Staker Garten, who was the head of Lutherans for Life, she died about three years ago. I've I've heard her speak a number of times. Said this, quote, Many Christians say glibly, Lord, I'll gladly bear the cross and I'll follow you. But in our hearts, we add, if it's lightweight, collapsible, transferable, and with a money-back guarantee. And then she goes on to say, if you are a Christian, make sure you look good on wood. Peter explains why. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. First of all, you are blessed because when you pray for them and treat them kindly, you defuse the situation in your own heart. And in some ways, it's no longer your issue. You are blessed secondly because you can only do this through the Spirit's work in your life. Which means you're developing in the fruit of the Spirit. You are blessed thirdly because your eternal ward and reward in heaven is increasing every day that you trace Christ. In verse ten, the word for introduces the reason why we shouldn't retaliate. The Bible says now we're not gonna go into this part of the passage. That's the next in two weeks part. Um every once if you ever Read when people write about musicals. Uh, Someone will burst into song. They'll burst in the, you know, they, they're speaking and then they burst into song. They just burst into song. One of the things that's very clear in this book, Peter just bursts into scripture. He just bursts into scripture all the time, and it's all the way through this book. So we're going to look at next time when he bursts into scripture. He's gonna he's going to be quoting from Psalm thirty four. He's already quoted from it once. He burst into Scripture earlier. And in Psalm 34, David was fleeing from Saul, and David was also fleeing from Abimelech. He was a stranger, an alien, in a hostile land, trying to live for God, but it was hard. Does that sound familiar to what Peter's addressing here? And, And here's where we put this passage on pause. But up to this point, Peter's counsel so far has been very clear. When you're treated badly, or even intentionally misunderstood, you have just been handed a witnessing opportunity. When you're treated badly, you have just been handed a witnessing opportunity. Don't respond out of the old man. Instead, you respond out of grace as a new creature, a royal priesthood, and you bless them as you pray for them. And you make the choice to respond in a way that traces Christ. Because every little choice, every little interaction, every tiny thing that you do as they accumulate through your day, through your week, through your years becomes, each, each one is a brush stroke that paints a beautiful portrait of your soul that looks every day more like Jesus as you trace Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something very uncomfortable as we close. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Everybody and I want you to picture in your mind someone that you do not like this this includes you at home close your eyes and picture in your mind someone that you do not like or someone who has wronged you now I want you to think why they might be the way that they are and What you have to be thankful for by contrast. This is not, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But they may have a life that you don't have. They may have a miserable home life, an oppressive parent, a bad spouse, a wayward child, unfulfilled dreams, whatever it might be. You just don't know. But consider the possibility that there... It doesn't excuse bad behavior, but consider the possibility that there are things that you do not know, that you are not aware of. And then now I want you to take a moment and pray for them. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would meet them at their point of need. And I want you to tell the Lord that you are open to being His hands and feet to reach them. Take a moment and pray that prayer on how to trace Christ. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Praise Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please.